about two or three in the morning. Welcome everyone to episode two of Scotonomics, where myself and my co-host Kieran and I are on a journey to discover how the economy really works and provide nourishment for independent minds. Now every second Wednesday on YouTube, Scotonomics delves into the details of our modern economy and tonight in episode two we look at the truth about government debt. But before we get to that, I want to find out from Karen about what has been getting her excited, annoyed and frustrated this week. And while we hear from Karen, please let us know what's been the economic news that's got you all hot under the collar this week. So, William, a couple of really positive things this week. So the first one was a tweet from the Washington Journal um, from the chairman of the Budget House Committee, um, John Yarmouth, and he was actually talking about real resources as opposed to affording things. And the second was a briefing from the European Environment Agency, and that was called Growth Without Economic Growth. And I have to say that personally, I find it quite profound that these things are being talked about in the mainstream right now. So with that in mind, I want to give our uh, guest uh, a wee shout out about his book, uh, Stephen Hale's book. It's called The Economics of Sustainable Prosperity. Good idea. Why not give his book a little pitch? Um, well, for me, the news this week was undoubtedly, undoubtedly the signing of the UK-Australia trade deal. Um, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about trade deals, like considering the overall impact, economic impact of these deals have on a modern economy, because things are so open and globalised anyway, they tend to garner a lot more coverage than they're actually worth. But this deal between the UK and Australia, I think, is really different. And I think it does, um, it, it should lead us to investigate this a little bit more. And for three reasons. I think the first one is that it's just the sheer ridiculousness of a free trade deal with a country 15,000 miles away, um, 50,000 kilometres away. Um, and when there's a whole continent about 30 kilometres away that we used to have a free trade deal with. Um, secondly, it's the precedent that this sets. And I think that's really worrying. And I think we can expect similar kind of ridiculous deals with Canada, the US um, and New Zealand. And thirdly, and I think most importantly, it's the damage that this free trade deal and other similar deals will have on the food security and the food sovereignty of Scotland. And that's the most important thing. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, there's a lot of distress out there in the farming community about this deal. It's uh, it's distressing to see. Yeah, yeah. Um Okay, well, I mean, so vexed our farmers and you and I that we've like to the that we've actually ripped up our schedule for economics, and episode five is now going to be dedicated to food sovereignty. So we're going to take a whole uh, show to look at that and why it's so important. We covered it in passing in in Fide the episode we did with Fidel, episode number one. Uh, but I think we need to go into much more detail, considering what seems to be like a scorched earth approach by Westminster. Okay, so now that we've cleared the air on those few things, um, let's get back to this week's episode. What are we talking about? So, I almost forgot, but this week um, we're talking to Stephen, Professor Stephen Hale um, about government debt. And is it really government debt? Brilliant. Okay, well, let's uh, get going. Enjoy the video, everyone. And please do drop in your comments and your questions uh, while we play this video. Enjoy. 
Hello to Dr. Stephen Hale. Um, Stephen is lecturer at the School of Economics and Public Policy at the University of Adelaide, and we're delighted that you're able to spend a bit of time with us today. Stephen is a modern monetary theory economist, advocates for a voluntary and equitable job guarantee, and is always happy, thankfully, to chat about MMT, post-Keynesian economics and ecological issues. Stephen has recently published Economics for Sustainable Prosperity, and he is currently a research scholar at the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. Dr. Stephen Hale, welcome to Scotinomics. Well, thanks for asking me on, William, and thanks, Karen. So my first question for you is, is government debt a misnomer? And if so, what should we call it? Well, it depends on the government, really, and it depends on the nature of the monetary system. When we are thinking about debt, the most important distinction, which most people are unaware of, is the distinction between a currency issuer and a currency user. And as far as the pound is concerned, it is the UK government in Westminster that is the currency issuer. Um, it spends pounds into the UK monetary system, which at the moment, of course, includes Scotland. Um, some of those pounds are taxed back out of the system again. And for a variety of reasons, it uh, um, covers the gap between what it spends and what it taxes approximately by auctioning um, uh, treasury bonds and also some short-term treasury bills as well. Um, people regard those treasury bonds as debt, but they are not debt in the conventional sense of the term. They're better thought of actually as a form of interest-bearing money. I've also heard someone refer to the government debt as the nation's savings. Is that another way to look at it? Um, the government's debt are the net financial assets of the non-government sector in the monetary system. That doesn't just include the nation, it includes the rest of the world too, if the rest of the world chooses to hold on to save assets um, denominated in, in, in a country's currency. So the pound, for example, is, I think, the fourth, is that right, the fourth uh, biggest reserve currency in the world. So uh, pounds are held around the world by um, um, financial institutions, by private investors and by central banks as part of their foreign exchange reserves. And if you are holding pounds, the safest asset to hold is treasury bonds issued by the currency issue by the UK government, which of course, because it issues the pound, can never run out of pounds. And so there's no default risk associated with holding uh, UK government, government bonds. They are commonly referred to, yes, as government debt. Sometimes people use the misnomer the national debt in the context of uh, the financial liabilities of the of the UK um, government, but they're not debt in the conventional sense of the term. And um, what people regard as the UK government's debt is better thought of as the net money supply in the UK. It's pounds that the currency issuer has spent into the monetary system. They're not taxed back out of the monetary system which are available for everybody else to hold as their savings, yes. When we're thinking about Scotland in particular, we hear a lot about Scotland's supposed debt and its deficit, but Scotland's actually unable to borrow more than, I think it's around five billion a year, which is pretty small considering the size of the Scottish economy. So is Scotland able to run up a deficit? Scotland effectively at the moment, as far as uh, deficit spending is concerned, is basically a local authority. Um, 
obviously, I don't need, you don't need me to tell you that at the moment Scotland is not an independent country. Um, it doesn't have monetary independence. Uh, it is not a currency issue with the Scottish government. Um, it's uh, uh, as a consequence of, 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 of not being a currency issuer, it is a currency user like like the local authority in Manchester, just on a bigger scale. Um, and consequently, the Scottish government, if it was free to issue debt um, without being limited by Westminster in terms of the amount of debt which it, which it did issue, would be f- faced with the, the same constraints that any other um, currency user is faced, would be faced with a, a, a possibility of uh, um, default risk and insolvency if they ran up debts that they couldn't repay. Um, the Scottish government needs at the moment to find pounds either um, coming from Westminster or coming from Scottish taxpayers or um, borrowing in the market before it can spend those pounds. Uh, it's not a currency issuer, of course. The UK government is the currency issuer. It does not have to go and find pounds before it spends them. Every pound that the UK government spends is a new pound in the UK monetary system and is then available, you're right, for people to, to save. And the UK government historically, like other governments around the world, has auctioned treasury bonds to allow savers to hold uh, interest-bearing pounds. UK government debt plays other roles in the in the UK uh, financial system as well, but it's not debt in the conventional sense of the term. And the UK government is in a very different position to the position of the Scottish government. And if Scotland becomes an independent country, but continues to use the pound as its currency, then actually Scotland's position will not have changed significantly as far as its uh, fiscal capacity is concerned. It'll still be faced by, with default risk. So, so do you think it would be a good idea or a bad idea if Scotland becomes independent to retain the British pound or go to something like the euro? Um, if Scotland retains the British pound, I will not regard Scotland as being independent. Uh, I also do not think it makes any sense to uh, move out of one form of economic and financial dependency, which is what Scotland effectively is at the moment, because by dint of the fact that the population of England is so much bigger than Scotland, what happens in Westminster is determined basically in England and not in Scotland. It would make no sense to um, go into uh, another similar set of circumstances. Scotland would have no influence at all over the euro, just as the Southern European countries have no influence over the euro. The uh, Prime Minister or whatever she would be called in an independent Scotland could ring the uh, um, President of the European Central Bank and the President of the European Central Bank might not even take the call. Um, I don't see any point in in leaving the UK and continuing to use the pound. I also don't see any point in moving away from the use of the pound towards using the euro. I recognise that creates difficulties because as things stand at the moment, if you apply to join the European Union, that involves a commitment at some stage 
to adopt a single currency. Um, if that's the price of Scotland going into the European Union, it's a price which is too high to pay. Great. Why that's would the type of that's the type of um, so I, I had a question from someone recently and um, they were talking about, is it possible for you to run an economy without issuing bonds? Well, I haven't been following the news all that closely in the UK recently, but um, I believe it's the case that over the last year, the Bank of England has been buying um Treasury bonds in the secondary market at about the same rate that the UK government has been issuing in, issuing them in the primary market. Now, effectively, when you look at balance sheets, in other words, when you look at the final result of what the Treasury has been doing and what the Bank of England has been doing, that is as though the bonds were not issued in the first place. So at the moment, the UK is, is effectively running a fiscal deficit without the issuance of bonds being auctioned by the treasury the, the debt management office and similar bonds are being repurchased um, by the bank of england often from the same institutions from the gilt edge market makers so at the moment um uh, treasury bond uh, issuance in the uk is basically just a way of providing a, a subsidy to gilt edge market makers to the big financial institutions that are more or less obliged to bid for the Treasury bonds, which are auctioned by the UK government every week. If Scotland was to become independent and a, a country that was starting up its own new financial system, you would say that, that actually it's not necessary to issue bonds? It's not if, necessary. On a, the other hand, it's not necessarily. If you, don't want to, uh, if you don't want to scare everybody by making too many revolutionary changes, it isn't going to do all that much harm either. common thing that you hear people saying is um, um, government debt borrowing is cheap right now. Um, what, I, what I would wonder is then why is that and who controls how cheap borrowing is? Well, the Bank of England does, of course, and they're doing it explicitly at the moment uh, through using quantitative easing in order to uh, set interest rates on the bond market. We're doing that a little bit more honestly in Australia, where the Reserve Bank is, is, is telling everybody what they are doing is they are setting the interest rate on three-year government debt at 0.1% deliberately. In Japan, for five or six years now, the Bank of Japan, remember, in the country which is supposed to have the highest level of government debt in the world, uh, has set the interest rate on 10-year government bonds at zero for the last five years. So um, it gets complicated when you start discussing these issues in a lot of detail. But basically, the central bank, if it chooses to do so, can set the interest rate on on uh, treasury bonds right the way across the yield curve, in other words, on, on the whole of government debt. If they don't choose to do that through using quantitative easing, then the interest rate on treasury bonds reflects what the market expects the official interest rate to be on average over time. So the yield on five-year UK government bonds would normally be influenced by what, market, what the market is forecasting, the Bank of England's official interest rate will be on average over the next five years. So it's, it's still the Bank of England that's setting the interest rate on, on what we call UK government debt. So I think for a lot of people, there again, there's very much a, 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 an understanding that the market 
um, controls this. Would you say with that interaction between the Bank of England and the market that actually the Bank of England is, is in control of that? I'd say the Bank of England can allow the market some influence if it chooses to do so. If the Bank of England wants to set the yield to maturity, the interest rate on UK government debt right the way across the whole yield curve, of course they can do that because uh, <laughs> they're not going to run out of pounds. So when it comes to trading on the secondary market, if that's how they choose to do it, they can swamp everybody else. And that's basically what central banks have been doing in the UK, in the Eurozone, in Japan, much of the time in the US and even recently in Australia and other countries. We all know that governments have a debt at the moment. As we said, it's a debt, it's a national debt. Have governments always run up debts and do they pay them back? Um, not all governments have net debts. Uh, some governments are have been uh, sort of forced not to do that. In the case of places like Norway, they've, they've run such big trade surpluses because of exporting all that oil. And I know Scotland has had uh, reserves of oil, but Norway's had even bigger reserves of oil and no more uh, people. All that uh, uh, foreign demand coming into Norway in order to limit inflation. In Norway, the government has run uh, trade surpluses over time. Uh, sorry, the government has run uh, uh, budget surpluses over time to drain some demand from the economy. And, and the same thing or a similar thing is true in, uh, in um, some of the Gulf states as well. But apart from countries that run large and persistent trade surpluses, if you are going to hold the economy close to full employment and you're not going to drive the private sector further and further into debt and eventually end up with a fragile financial system, or have a recession because the private sector refuses to go further into debt, but the government isn't prepared to do the deficit spending, then it is essential for the government to run a deficit over time. And most countries' governments have run deficits most of the time across their history. That is true of the UK government. I like to uh, have a look at Bank of England data going back to the 18th century. And you can have a look at uh, um, what we call the sectoral balances for the UK, uh, which takes into account the trade balance and whether the private sector has been net saving or net borrowing and whether the government's been net saving or, 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 or um, whether net saving is not the right term for the government, whether the government's been running a surplus, draining pounds from the monetary system or running a deficit and putting additional pounds into the monetary system. And if you look at the history of the UK going all the way back to the 18th century, then uh, most of the time the UK government has, has, has been running deficits. That's because the UK private sector nearly all the time has wanted to net save, has wanted to want to run a surplus. There was a period of about 50 years in the 19th century when under Gladstone and Disraeli, the UK government did approximately balance its budget. And really, that's where the balanced budget nonsense came from in the UK. Um, the domestic private sector was still running a surplus. How was that possible? The British Empire was running the deficit. For every surplus in the monetary system, there has to be a deficit. If you're not going to have uh, an empire which allows you to run a trade surplus year after year after year, like the UK did 
in the 19th century if you're not going to be an economy that persistently runs a trade surplus, which is not something that we recommend countries to try and do in any case, if you're not going to be a Singapore or a, an oil exporter with hardly anyone living in the country, then in order for the private sector to be able to net save, in order for there to be healthy private sector balance sheets, in the case of the UK, the pounds that the private sector needs to save has to come from the currency issue. It has to come from the government, and that involves deficit spending. And, of course, when the government spends more than it taxes and runs a deficit, we say the government is adding to its debt or to the national debt. We really shouldn't use that language. We should say the government is increasing the net money supply. And do governments ever pay back that debt? As far as the UK government is concerned, no, it has never. Um, repaid, not since the 18th century anyway, the whole of the UK's national debt. UK governments have run surpluses. Most of the surpluses in the UK have been in the relatively recent past under Margaret Thatcher or Tony Blair. They were not good ideas. They drove the private sector into debt and in order to encourage the private sector to go further into debt, they deregulated the financial system, particularly the uh, Blair-Brown government was guilty of that. And of course, as in other countries like the US, that contributed towards the global financial crisis. And uh, when you have a severe recession like that, the currency issuer, even though it has foolishly been uh, um, pursuing a, a fiscal surplus when it shouldn't have done previously, when it's been draining pounds from the monetary system, weakening private balance sheets, forcing the private sector to go further back into debt. When the collapse happens, of course, the currency issuer has to step in and rescue the system. And you can do that if you've got your own currency in a floating exchange rate, if you're a monetary sovereign. If you are Portugal, Spain, Italy, Greece, at the time, the Republic of Ireland, and God forbid in a future crisis, Scotland in the Eurozone, you can't do that. And, but it's very interesting what you said about the UK never paying back its debt, because as part of the Sustainable Growth Commission report, which is effectively underpinning the Scottish National Party's economic policy, part of that report said that Scotland should pay back, uh, I think it's around £3 billion each year towards the government debt the UK government debt. Does that sound like a sensible approach for our government to be, government to be taking? It sounds like um, what you'd expect to hear from someone who doesn't understand how monetary systems work. Because as we were saying, the UK, the UK government's debt is not a debt in the conventional sense of the term. The UK government is and has been for centuries the issuer of the UK pound. The UK pound is now a fully fiat currency. The UK government is a monetary sovereign. The sum total of the net financial liabilities of the UK government is better thought of as the net money supply is the supply of pounds for everybody else to hold, which the private sector has not had to borrow into existence because the, the currency issue has spent it in, into existence. Now, 
these pounds are not the responsibility of a new Scottish government. The new Scottish government is not the currency issuer for the pound. Just as I certainly don't recommend Scotland take the same route as Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia when they left the Soviet Union, uh, because they, as we, as we know, they ended up uh, in the Eurozone. But there is one thing that, that should be learned from um, examples like those countries launching their own currency, which is that they did not take on board part of the so-called national debt of the Soviet Union. And Scotland should not do that. And the British government, actually, I believe, has quite correctly admitted that UK government debt is not a financial liability. It's very interesting you said that because the Treasury has said that categorically. However, the Sustainable Growth Growth Commission report still maintains that Scotland should pay back debt. And just a final question on that, because it's so interesting for our viewers, is that what would happen if Scotland agreed to pay back this debt in pounds? Because that's important as well. It's agreeing to pay back it in, in, in British pounds. So how would Scotland go about earning those pounds to be able to pay back the debt that we've kind of voluntarily taken on board? And what impact well, would that have on the Scottish economy? The Scottish government will be taking on board um foreign currency denominated debt and of course um, because the pound is foreign currency as far as the government is concerned it, it, it's a it's a currency uh, 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 user as far as the pound is concerned and Scotland will not have full monetary sovereign to be a monetary sovereign you need to issue your own currency and collect taxes in that currency that currency must be a floating currency it must not be convertible at a fixed rate into gold or into anything else that you could possibly run out of, like a foreign currency. And you must have no significant foreign currency denominated debt. It's crucially important that a newly independent Scotland is not burdened by a significant amount of foreign currency denominated debt, because with that comes default risk, with that comes um, a fear then that the Scottish currency might depreciate against the pound and that might make it more difficult to service that debt. Um, it's something which should be avoided. And uh, the so-called solidarity payment, if you're going to make a solidarity payment, I don't think it's necessary to, but if you want to do it, then by all means negotiate with the rest of the UK and provide the rest of the UK government with non-marketable um, debt securities denominated in Scottish pounds, if you're going to call the currency the pound, and pay them interest denominated in your own currency that you can't run out of. But I don't think it's necessary to do that. And I honestly don't think it would be a big deal for very long with the rest of the UK, if uh, if the Scottish government, based on an understanding of modern monetary theory, that basically what we are talking about here is interest-bearing pounds issued on behalf of the UK government by its fiscal agent, the Bank of England, which has never been called the Bank of Scotland, um, and 
I think uh, I think it's possible to explain to people that uh, that's part of the rest of the UK's monetary system, and Scotland is going to launch its own monetary system. I do think it's not as complicated as people make it out to be. Your explanation has been really, really helpful. And and at the core of this issue is that Scots, being fairly honest, a lot of people think that it's our debt and we've 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 run up. So of course we have to pay it back. And I think that kind of takes advantage of the the, the good that's in Scottish people and, and, and Scotland as a society that, that we think we have to pay this back. And I think it's been really helpful for our viewers that you've explained that that's not really the same as something you owe your neighbour or your friends. It's a very different idea of debt and it's not something that we should be thinking about that we have to repay because it's not the same as a debt that you've run up to someone else. It's completely different. Currency issuers in their own currency don't in a meaningful sense have debt at all. So uh, uh, I often say that the Australian government, because it has no significant foreign currency debt, the UK government, I haven't checked the balance sheet of the UK government, but I don't think the UK government has significant foreign currency denominated net debt either. Um, they don't have debt. They issue the currency at, they, for a variety of reasons that I mentioned before. They choose to auction treasury bonds, which people regard as government debt, but they are really a form of interest-bearing currency. Um, it was not essential for the UK government to auction treasury bonds in order to allow the UK government to spend pounds, they issue the pound. Um, and, and the same thing ought to be true in Scotland. Once Scotland is an independent country, then you know if the Scottish government engages in too much spending relative to the taxes that it uses to delete Scottish pounds from the Scottish monetary system, the consequence of that will be inflation. It's never going to be insolvency. And uh, uh, if you are the currency issuer, then those Scottish pounds, which the Scottish government spends into the system and has not yet taxed back out of the system, which people will, um, I suppose, refer to as Scotland's government debt or perhaps even Scotland's uh, national debt. It's not. It, 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 it's just the country's net money supply. That's all it is. Um, so do I think uh, uh, the solidarity payment is a good idea? No, I don't. Uh, you might say that it's Scottish people being honest and nice. I think it's um, being foolish and self-sabotage. There will be transition costs. Uh, mm. uh, it's not, uh, uh, as I said, it's not as complicated as people make it out to be. That doesn't mean that there are not uncertainties when it comes to introducing your own currency and loading yourself up with disadvantages that you don't need to load yourself up with um, is, is not helpful. And if, if foolish decisions were ever to force Scotland into a recession, that wouldn't even help England either. But I guess the, the other thing the other thing I maybe wanted to point out as well is for me, I've always viewed government bonds rather as currency that uh, that emits um interest um as as a as a as a savings account because obviously it's in, with a currency you can spend it right away but 
a bond is 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 is, is a bank account that is time limited. So you know, my, my bank recently sent me some information about buying bonds, and I had three choices. You know, I could go for one year, two year, three years. And they would give different interest rates. Obviously, more interest the longer I was prepared to leave the money in in that bond. So it doesn't exactly fit that because with government bonds, of course, you can sell them on the secondary market. It's very so, so you get your cash back whenever you that, like. That gives them the fluidity. Yes. Okay. I see. But that that I guess it's, that's a very specialised market of fluidity. It's not you know for me to just do very quickly. No, ordinary people don't on the whole buy government bonds. I mean, you can buy government bonds. They are available in retail amounts. Yes. Um, but uh, they are, generally speaking, held by big financial institutions. Um, and the, the, the gilt-edge market makers, they get various privileges, and in return for those privileges, um, they have the responsibility that they are supposed to quote prices at which they are prepared to from investors buy or sell um, uh, the range of treasury bonds that they specialize in uh, over time. And there is a very active secondary market. They buy and sell a lot of them. One of those gilt edge market makers was once called the Royal Bank of Scotland. It's, of course, now called NatWest. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, that, that's that's clarified that point for me. That's great. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Stephen Hill, thank you so much for joining us on the second issue of Scotsonomics. And I personally found your insights really, really useful. Um, Kieran, how did you feel about that? That was really informative, Stephen. Thank you so much for coming on to Scotonomics. Well, thanks. Thanks very much for uh, asking me. And I hope before too long that there's an independent Scotland. And I also hope that there's a, a Scottish pound and that the Scottish government is a full monetary sovereign and is taking advantage of that to deliver full employment and a job guarantee and all the things that you want to see. I think we'll both nod along to that, won't we, Kim? Yeah, <laughs> we're working on it. <laughs> bye bye. Thanks very much. Yeah. Bye bye. I know. <laughs>wasn't that really interesting to have such clarity um, from an uh, Englishman based in Australia about Scottish debt and the Scottish fiscal and monetary situation? That was fantastic. Um, I've just got to uh, do a little summary of the um, feedback that we've had so far. Um, uh, thanks very much, David, says cracking stuff, debunking the truths uh, peddled in the media and governments. Thanks very much. Karen, sm that smile and nod, that's what we're trying to do, isn't it, here? <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. I think certainly a lot of the comments have been backing up everything that um, Stephen was saying um, around the debt and repayment and the, the kind of the, the, the position that we would be in as an independent country if we started off paying debt to Westminster. That certainly came through um, in the comments. Um, uh, Scottish Ross has said Moldova introduced their own currency in 1933 after becoming independent from the Soviet Union in 1991. So there are precedents for this. So thanks very much um, for all the comments. Please do drop any more comments or kind of questions around uh, these topics in the next five, ten minutes uh, we've got left. But um, thanks so much for your feedback. Um, okay, so uh, Karen, what were um, what were your takeaways from that? 
Um, I think the three most important things I thought. So number one was that we all need to become more economically literate. Because for years, orthodox economists have been making irrational assumptions based on unrealistic models, which if you were an engineer or a scientist and you were using unrealistic models, you would be sacked. Um, but So this is, this is what's been going on for about the past 40 or 50 years. Um, these models, they're based on barter, but anthropologists have shown that that this is not how economies functioned, you know, and uh, it, that's that's really uh, very worrying when the models that economists use actually don't include money or banks. Um, the second thing is that money didn't evolve in the private sector. It is fundamentally a tool of the state. And uh, the UK and the US um in Scotland, an independent Scotland can function without bonds. It's not necessary to issue bonds. Um, so those are my three big takeaways from what Stephen was saying. So I, I noticed that you managed to get in the uh, Sustainable Growth Commission again. <laughs> at least, at, um, at least twice. I think I dropped that, and, and it was quite clear that Stephen knew about it as well. It wasn't kind of news to him uh, what the Sustainable Growth Commission uh, report was and, and what it was planning to do. But yeah, um, that's certainly a bugbear of mine, which I'm kind of—it's like an itch that I'm just continually, <laughs> continually scratching. Um, uh, and uh, you know, I've mentioned that a couple of things in the comments as well, which people kind of came back on this idea of sterilisation and the situation we'd be in with the um, uh, repayment. Uh, that we've voluntarily agreed to pay to Westminster because we're such fantastic chaps. Um, okay, well, for um, for for me, my kind of key takeaway from that um, uh, was that it's we we call it debt, and it's quite clearly not debt. It's something completely different. And um, when we discussed this earlier, we were saying actually it's a financial instrument. And that's what the government is money supply and um, it's printing money, it's selling pounds and then buying them back. And it can do that for the exactly the same price. So there's no debt anywhere. It's a financial instrument and financial instruments can be really complicated to explain. And what I think we've got to start with is to say this is what it's not. The government it is not debt because they can print money and they can buy it back using pounds. They'll never run out of pounds. It's not debt like the debt that we owe um, uh, other people. And as soon as I think we get more people around to that idea and understanding that government debt isn't debt like anything else, then I think it's easier to move on to explain what it actually is. So for me, that's the fundamental thing that came from his um, his session. And, and you said it about monetary, um, you know, we need to know a little bit more about how money works. And I think everyone who's watching this, it'd be great if they can just find someone else who's not too sure about what debt is and we explain to them that what it's not, and then we can move to, on to what it's not because it is, um, it, it's, it's, it's really simple, but it's also really complicated. So if that's just kind of covered it, um, any more uh, questions, we can have a little look at that. But um, let's think about our next show, Karen. So next show, show three on the 7th of July. What have we got coming up? So it's the hottest topic at the moment, which is what is going on in the US economy? And we, I'm happy to say, I have a female economist um, called Yevan Nearsan coming on to Scotonomics in the next episode. 
Fantastic. And it's um, an American revolution, I believe we've called it. Um, now, you mentioned, um, um, I think it was um, Chairman of the Budget Committee. Um, I actually, while you were doing this, I actually found that. So I'm going to play that for the audience. And this is what you got really excited about. And I think it just shows what's happening in the US. So I think it's 30 seconds. I hope this works. Uh, we'll see how we go on. The thing that I am so impressed about uh, from the Biden administration is that they're reversing decades and decades of our asking questions in the wrong order. Uh, historically, what we've always done is said, what can we afford to do? And that's not the right question. The right question is, what do the American people need us to do? And that's that question becomes the first question. Once you've answered that, then you say, how do you how do you resource that uh, that need? The thing that. So, so, Karen, do you just want to briefly just, you know, a, a minute or so, just kind of explain why that's so fundamental and why you got so kind of excited when you saw that? Yeah, I mean, this is groundbreaking. I mean, this is something that I've brought up with some journalists uh, previously as well, because this is this is John Yarmouth talking about real resources. You know, this is the grown-up conversation that I'm looking for from politicians and economists is that, you know, currency is the tool, and but it's the real resources that matter. And stop telling us where are we going to find the money, because that is a nonsense. Fantastic. And, and that leads uh, into a question that we've got, which is uh, why do so many people within the SNP um, uh, against this what do you what what do you think and uh, david said it's a really good question and he thinks they're too influenced by current orthodox economics question mark so i think he's right <laughs> but he's formed that as a question what do you reckon Kira? where why do you think that um, it seems to be taking uh, a, a while if at all for some of these ideas to start to kind of get into the the, the scottish government and certainly without shadow without uh, the uk government well, the orthodoxy is very powerful. That's why it's called the orthodoxy. And, uh, you know, still every year you you have young people going to do economics degrees and they will taught the dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model in the first year and they are literally being taught that there's no, there are no monies, money or banks. Uh, so it, 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 the problem goes right to the heart of our, our education system um, and, and what it's churning out. Yes, absolutely. Having as someone who studied economics, I can say that is definitely the case. Uh, was then and still is now. Well, that, that I think ho hopefully um, gives people an idea of the type of conversations we are hoping to have with our audience, and um, to encourage them to have similar conversations with people within the SNP. Um, the street, the pub, where we are, just a clearer understanding of how a modern economy actually works. But I'm really looking forward to the episode in a couple of weeks because, as you said, it's it's groundbreaking what's happening in the states, and what happens there tends to happen here. And if we look back to late 1970s, the birth of the neoliberalism and the Chicago School, that happened in the states. I wonder if something similar around modern monetary theory, a much more a much more progressive approach to the economy, is happening. Um, find out if that's the case in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, really hope you can join us then. Um, from myself, William Thompson, goodbye. And from my co-host... Goodbye. Thanks so much. Bye now.